Hello. Hey, happy summer in the Psalms. How you doing? Hey, happy summer in the Psalms to you too. I am doing great. I've just had a really productive week. Lots of little tasks that I knocked out today, and I'm ready to talk. Like I got, I got nothing else to say. Just my world is fine. All is well. I have a an author that I love who always described one of his characters by saying that for this one particular character, all was well with the world if all was well with him. Mm. And sometimes that's the way it feels, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's yes, it does. And I can't always say that I feel like all is well with the world because all is well with me. So yeah, makes sense. Uh, How are you? I am... Today feels a bit discombobulated, to be honest. Uh, I was in the middle of my time with God this morning when I got a text from my wife that said, hey, we have a problem. That was it. (laughs) Not a great text. (laughs) That's one of those that you're just like, yeah, I'm busy. I'm going to get to that later. Yeah. So like, and except then I started, I, I, I can ruminate a bit excessively and so i was like okay we have a problem we have a problem we have a problem (laughs) and which of the three was it we have a problem was the correct one that sounds like Um, plumbing no it wasn't plumbing it was covid she has covid and we spent the weekend, like going out with friends and celebrating her birthday and all sorts of things. And then after all of that, and she was feeling like she had allergy problems all weekend. And then we found out she had COVID. So that Uh, is super unfortunate. Yeah, that's crummy. Well, I hope none of the rest of you get it. And I hope she gets well soon. Exactly. So far, all three of the rest of us have tested negative. I will probably take one more test tomorrow morning and call it good unless I start feeling gross. So, yes, I hope we do not get it either. Oh, well, uh, what is on your mind today? What did you call for? Well, you know, we are in the middle of this Summer on the Psalms series, and we're inviting people to read the Psalms with us, and they can get the reading schedule online, on our social media accounts. They can get the reading schedule in the show notes of the episode. They can get the reading schedule all sorts of different places. But the reading for today actually caught my attention, and I wanted to talk about it. So I actually asked you to read just one day ahead, because today's reading was half of Psalm 18, and I just wanted to take some time and dig into Psalm 18 together, because it is absolutely amazing to me, and it captures a whole bunch of different themes, some of which I really struggle with, some of which I find really engaging. It happens to have my absolute favorite verse in the entire Psalms in it. So it's like this amazing pile of wonderful, confusing, and frustrating all at the same time. And I thought, what a great thing to talk about. Wow. I would love to. And yes, you did give me a heads up so that I will have had my reading done uh, in time. 
And I want to say just one quick note to the listeners before we dive in. Yes, you can get the reading plan in all those places, and we hope that you do. And we also hope that if this is the first episode you've listened to, or you're finally convinced you should join in and you haven't done all the other reading, it's fine. Jump right in right now. Or maybe you intended to start and you just didn't get out of the gate. It's fine. As Josh from Missouri said a few weeks ago, it's not like any of the Psalms build on one another. You're not losing the plot. So pick up right where you left off or pick up right here and join us for the rest of the series. So, uh, But with that, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I want to know what is your favorite verse, and I want to know what stood out to you about this psalm. Absolutely. So let me just say, with what you just mentioned, the one suggestion I would make to our readers is if they have not read Psalm 18 recently, pause this and go listen to it or read it in the Bible app and then come back. This conversation will make a lot more sense if you've actually listened to it. It'll take like six or seven minutes. It's not a big deal. And then you can come back. It'll be great. But (laughs) so with that said, my absolute favorite verse in the whole Psalms that has stuck with me for a long, long time now is the end of Psalm 1835. Psalm 1835 says, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. That final line, your gentleness made me great, is one of the most unexpected, shocking thoughts that I've ever read in the Bible in some ways. Because when you think about how to help someone become great, at least when I think about how to help someone become great, I think of challenging them, I think of pushing them. I think of inspiring them. I think of a lot of things, but I do not think about being gentle towards them. Mm. And we talked about beauty a couple of weeks ago. That is an idea, the beauty of which absolutely captivates me every time I think about it. That is so countercultural, so opposed to everything I think, that I just have to pause and think, wait, how does gentleness result in greatness? I find that stunning. Yeah. Honestly, I've read the psalm through a number of different times now in preparation for this episode, and that line did not stick out to me. But it's fascinating that that line is in this psalm when a number of verses are dedicated to a very visceral description of God coming down from heaven in royal vengeance to defend his own against the enemy. I mean, the imagery that is used throughout there is stark and shocking and terrifying, quite honestly. And you think of that Mm -hmm. image of this terrifying God stepping out of heaven, thunderbolts, darkness, clashing, lightning, and God coming down to destroy is in the same psalm as his gentleness makes me great. That's a lot. That's a lot to put together. That is what I like to think of as emotional range. (laughs) Right. But, and and, you know, to, to, to come to the first half of that, 
the language that you're describing in kind of the early middle part of the psalm, verses 7 and following there, all of this language riding the the cherubim and smoke coming out of his nostrils and glowing coals flaming forth from him and darkness under his feet riding the wind wings of the wind now i make no secret of the fact that i am an avid fantasy reader and this language is straight out of a fantasy novel yeah if i had to ask somebody if i took that little chunk right there and said is this out of homer or out of the bible I bet the average person, even the average Christian, would, if they were equally informed about the Homer and the Bible, I'm guessing many people would think Homer. You know, the Greek gods, is this a description of Zeus or is this a description of Yahweh? Clearly, yeah. this is Zeus, right? What do you think of that? What do you do with that? I don't know. You know, we've talked a little bit lately on this podcast about kind of the evocative nature of scripture and how it just causes you to sit and sit with the imagery. And I have to do that with this psalm. And I really like your invitation to compare it to a sci-fi novel, because I think it, it helps to just, it helps me to remember that this is a creative expression with words, much like a novel would be. Sometimes I feel like scripture is so vaulted and exalted, and it's God's holy word, and I attach so much significance to it that I don't allow the beauty of it to sink in. And to use the analogy of a novel and allow myself to just sit with the beauty of it, the imagery of it, uh, is really helpful to me. So I don't know what to do with it other than that. And one person that helps me to do that is Eugene Peterson. I mentioned before that I was going to be using the message on occasion to also read some of the Psalms out of the message in addition to the NIV. And mm. I, I really like some of what Eugene Peterson writes about this. And I'm going to just write read a few lines from what he said Oh, please do, because I have not actually read this in the, in the message. I'm actually super excited about this. Oh, perfect. Uh, yeah, so starting in verse 7, it kind of starts like this. Earth wobbles and lurches. Huge mountains shake like leaves. Quake-like aspen leaves because of his rage. His nostrils flare, bellowing smoke. His mouth spits fire. Tongues of fire dart in and out. He lowers the sky. He steps down. Under his feet, an abyss opens up. He's riding a winged creature, swift on wind wings. Now he's wrapped himself in a trench coat of black cloud darkness. But his cloud brightness burst through, spraying hailstones and fireballs. Then God thundered out of heaven. The high God gave a great shout, spraying hailstones and fireballs. God shoots his arrows, pandemonium. He hurls his lightnings, a rout. That's just so descriptive and passionate. There's just a lot of movement to that. And I appreciate Eugene Peterson's take that helps me just sit with the imagery in a new way. Yeah, I found it both very helpful and very 
unpleasant all at the same time in certain ways because the simple earthy language that he uses the staccato rhythm the unbiblical imagery trench coat things like that force me to actually pay attention to the imagery even more and force me to this nexus of imagery and reality that is where I wrestle with this the most. What mm. is actually going on? What are we actually describing? And on what level is this happening? Is this Are we just talking about a tornado? Is that what's happening here? <laughs> right? Like the best sort of similarity or or parallel that I can draw is to compare this to the book of Revelation and call this in some level or on some level apocalyptic, right? This is pulling back the curtain of quote-unquote reality, the lesser reality, to show us what's happening in the greater reality. Hmm. It may have looked like a mere tornado from our limited vantage point. But if we had all the facts and could see the truth, this is what we'd really see. Yeah, I have to be honest. When I sit with this and think about God actually doing this, my very unchristian response, I mean, I know it's kind of all over the Psalms, but like, how long, God? How long do we have to wait? How long... Do we have to suffer with ungodly leaders, with foolishness in our society, hatred spewed across the pages of our news? How long do we have to wait for God's justice to come rolling down like that? I want that to happen. I am tired of waiting. And I'm so tired of waiting. If I'm honest, there are times I look at that type of imagery and go, would God even really do that? I haven't seen it. Hmm. I know that's an unchristian response, but like that's part of how I react to this. No, I think it's fair. You know, I think we both have equally unchristian responses in historically opposite directions. Mine is something in the realm of, wait, did God really do that? <laughs> and yours is, wait, will God really do that? <laughs> but they are ultimately two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Uh, yeah, they absolutely are. And I don't know what the resolution to that is. I mean, other than to just come back to the promises of scripture and just hold fast to them because I've got no other choice. But Still, that that emotional response wells up in me unprovoked. Well, and I think this is what's great about the Psalms. The Psalms provide me a mirror into my own spirit that allow me to see my own spiritual poverty. Mm. Because I, I have a hard time, you know, like if I come back to the the beatitudes blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven well i discover my poverty of spirit when i read a psalm like this and think 
how real are we talking right now? <laughs> like, is this just pretty language and really we're just talking about a hurricane? Or is God actually going to rend the heavens and come down? Yeah. And I almost am jealous of the psalmist here, right? David writes this having, you know, the superscript indicates that this was written after David had experienced deliverance from Saul and all of his enemies. And so David has the ability to write this psalm having experienced exactly what he said God is going to do, or did. It's fresh on his mind. He watched it before his own eyes. I don't have that same experience. I've got to trust that he did and that I could, or I can, or I will, but I'm almost jealous of him because he got to see it and then write about it. Well, and and the the argument that at least one of the commentators I was reading about this was making, particularly from that superscript, was that he is not talking about a specific moment. He is talking about the entire story of the many years in which God overcame the enemies and especially Saul. And so that particular commentator is saying, look, it's not that there was a moment where he saw the physical incarnation of this vision, but rather he is given a supernatural vantage point to understand what's going on behind the scenes, and he describes it this way. Mm. So it's, it's his glasses that are different, not his experience that is different, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's accurate, but that is what one of the commentators suggested. And that's a fascinating question to sit with, because I feel like the two experiences are very, very different. On the one hand is our modern American thinking, which says instantaneously, everything's about the now, everything's about the what have you done recently for me? What is the most vivid expression of this that I can point to in my recent past? He's suggesting that after deep contemplation of God's faithfulness over the period of years and over the course of many enemies being subdued before him, he is then allowing all of that to sink in and overflow from his soul into this vivid description of what God has been doing all along. That is very different than my instantaneous thinking. Yeah, well, and I'll be honest— I think you developed the thought that the commentator was offering actually significantly and in a very beneficial direction. I'm not sure he managed to say all of that, but I think he would have if he thought about it longer. Um, <laughs> because I think you make a great point. This description is the result of significant rumination on the character and work of God. And as a very modern person, I want to make sure I add, it is the inspired result of significant rumination. David had to do the ruminating, but God had to do the inspiring. 
Mm. And all of that resulted in this scriptural moment. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, as I look at this, it's not just the work of God that is so characterized. You know, this is the chapter that has the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Again, deeply symbolic language. I mean, not that he wasn't potentially going to potentially experience death as a result of some of the things that was happening, but this is, again, fairly mythic language. Yeah, and speaks of the depths from which he cried out to God and how serious his situation mm-hmm. was. Uh, it's interesting that we're talking about this contemplation, this long pause, if you will, that must have taken place before David could sit and write this psalm. Because in preparation for this, I also went and listened to poor Bishop Hooper's take on this psalm. And they begin the psalm with all of this, like, I'm wrapped up and tangled up in all of these cords of death, and I'm crying out to God, and he hears my voice. And so you have this plaintive cry, and then this long musical interlude where no words are spoken. The tone of the song subtly shifts throughout that interlude, and then you get this vision of God coming and rescuing, and to the faithful you prove yourself faithful, and you are my rock, you are my rock, I stand on you, and it's it's this ultimate triumph that you get out of this song, because it, it's almost like through that interlude, through that long pause, David is able to realize how firm of a foundation he really has, despite all of the ad- adversity he's faced. Yeah, well, and can I, if, can I use that as a jumping off point to kind of hit another piece of the psalm that we have not talked about yet that I find wildly frustrating and confusing? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do it. I wrestle every single time with verses like ch- verse 20. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. From a very young age, my response to verses like that is genuinely a heartfelt, dear God, please not that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. Right. Do not reward me according to the cleanness of my hands. Please no. And that is not me being like falsely humble. That is me being fully aware that if there are Christians out there who don't have to like desperately need the cross, I'm not one of them. Yeah. And so I read these verses and think, what do I do with that? This is, he hangs his hat on, I am righteous. And honestly, I get very frustrated with the interpreters on verses like this. Because they make an effort to say, as a matter of fact, one of the commentaries that I read on this particular verse getting ready for this conversation, they said, well, this righteousness is not talking about a moral state of goodness. It is talking about a state of being in right relationship with God, which, first of all, I think is 
creating a dichotomy that the author would not have understood. He would have not distinguished between those two things super clearly. And second of all, if we have to pick one, the second half of the verse, the cleanness of my hands, really makes it sound like he's talking about moral purity. Yeah, well, okay, so you had mentioned that this really sticks with you. And so I had prepared an answer to your thought here. But now I'm afraid because it is in some ways similar to the commentator that you read. So let me let me put it out there and you tell me where it falls short or, or let's let's work with it a little bit. My interpretation of this goes back to Deuteronomy 28. And after all of the law has been given through, you know, rehearsed through Deuteronomy uh, and recited back to the nation of Israel, Moses' speech to Israel closes with the blessings and the curses that will result from Israel's response to the law. So 28 verse 1 begins, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commands, I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And he starts to uh, enumerate them. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. Then your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. And you will be blessed. This passage always makes me think of Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Yes, right? Uh, You'll be blessed when you come and when you go out. But then it switches in verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will be upon you and overtake you. And then he starts enumerating them. And so they were set up from the get-go to say, look, If you are faithful to this covenant, then God will bless you. If you are unfaithful to this covenant, God will curse you. God himself will also pledge himself to this covenant. And his love, his hesed, which I would say was covenantal love or covenantal faithfulness. I think the NIV uses steadfast love. He is going to remain faithful to this covenant. And we will receive the blessings or the curses of our faithfulness to it. And so I think that's what David is saying. He's like, look, I have followed the covenant like you told me to. And the responsibility that you have as a result is to bless me and to defend me against my enemies. I think that that is exactly what David is attempting to say. And I would highlight two words that you used Uh, when you were reading Deuteronomy, the words fully and the words word carefully. And Mm. this reminds me of when I was uh, one of my early jobs, I was a waiter in a restaurant chain that no longer exists. And the owner of the chain came to our orientation and he gave us these little cards and they said BS on them. And he said, here are some promises we are going to make to you as employees Carry this with you, and if we ever break them, just drop the card. (laughs) All right. And when David says this, I want to pull the card out. (laughs) Yeah. No, dude. 
No, you're not. I'm sorry. But no, the only way I can get around this in my head, and this is a, I think, convoluted way to get around it, but I think it is the right way. But I, again, I'm, I offer this up as an option. And, and this really comes from my, you know, you said a f- last week, the week before, whenever I mentioned in my thought that Sandra Richter talks about Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as the introduction to the two key themes of the Psalms. I think this is, for me, an intersection of those two key themes, law and Messiah. Uh, Psalm 1 is about the law and righteousness. Psalm 2 is about the divine king. But we find out at the end of Psalm 18, this is a psalm the king wrote from his perspective. This is not an everyday person's psalm. This is a king's psalm. The king is saying all of these things. And when I realize that, I find myself saying, yeah, but David was not this guy. He was a poor foreshadowing of this guy. Mm. But there is someone who was able to say this with full confidence in a way that David couldn't. If David said this and actually believed it about himself, he was delusional. (laughs) But if Jesus said it about himself... It was a fully self-aware moment that Mm. he was able to say this. And on some level, he's both sides of this, right? He is the God who rends the heavens and comes down. And he is the king that says, I'm here. Deal with me according to my righteousness. And the only way I get to be a part of this is in the same way that All of Israel is tied up in the identity of the king and relates to God through the identity of the king. I get to relate to God through the identity of Christ as my identity is swept up and subsumed within his. And as he prays these words, he prays them on behalf of all of us and they become true for me because they are true for him. And I just get to sort of ride the benefit of the king praying this prayer. And on some level, I I end up in the thought that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for me, right? This is a verse that for me, he can intercede for me and that I can't pray for myself. Hmm. Does any of that resonate? Well, I have two comments to make. One, I think Spurgeon just came back That was an amazing sermon. Uh, And two, for all the listeners, like I'm not, I'm not poking fun. Like that was amazing. Uh, And for all the listeners, rewind and listen to that again. There's nothing more I could say to that. That was amazing. And again, rewind, listen to it again. It was great. Oh, thank you. I have spent a lot of time wrestling with this. It was so great. I'm going to make it one of our chapter markers. So listeners, if you didn't know, we actually have like little chapter clicks that, you know, you can click over and find out what Josh from Missouri's thought was on that episode or where does our conversation actually start, whatever. All those chapter markers are there. I'm going to make a chapter marker at the beginning of that soliloquy because it was fantastic. Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, I mean, I ultimately, that is how this ends up making sense to me. 
And now I am in that pleasant spot where I am mildly embarrassed, but feel like it's my turn to say something and I'm not sure what to say. So I'm going to say, what else do you think? (laughs) I think this is as good a place as any to leave the conversation for today. I'm so thrilled that you enjoyed Psalm 18 and wanted to share it with us today. This was a great conversation. So I encourage all the listeners, once again, please join us. Join us for the Summer in the Psalms. Immerse yourself in this reality. Let it soak in like David soaked in the reality of what God had done for him year after year, time after time. Soak in the Psalms with us. And then come share your thoughts. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram. Just search for On the Phone with Josh and let us know what you've been thinking about as you engage the Psalms. We want to do this together. Mm, Yeah, so much. I am really curious to hear kind of as you, we use this word ruminate, uh, as you ruminate on some of these Psalms, like what is it that you're thinking? But uh, speaking of what are you thinking, Josh from Oregon, what have you been thinking about this week? Yeah, so I'm reading a book. I'm almost finished with it. It's called The Revolutionary uh, Samuel Adams by Stacey Schiff. Have you read this yet? I haven't. I don't think I've ever read a book about Sam Adams. I hadn't either. Oh my goodness, I am learning a ton. Samuel Adams is the prime mover agitating throughout Boston in the decade leading up to the revolution. And he is publishing pseudonymous, no, synonymous, pseudonymous, I have no idea. Uh, Okay. Uh, He's publishing articles under pseudonyms, and (laughs) he's kind of walking from house to house, just kind of agitating, kind of coaxing, cajoling. He establishes the Committee of Correspondence to be able to like reach out to other towns and cities and even other colonies. And Uh, ensure that they can all learn about all the quote-unquote atrocities that are happening in Boston. And then he like starts this newspaper that is kind of underground, and he sends all of the content over to New York, and it gets published first in New York, and then matriculates through the colonies. So his actions behind the scene aren't really seen. And he is just inflaming everything innuendos, insinuations, outright falsehoods. He's just embellishing and outright lying at times about what is happening in the city of Boston and just keeping that flame going and just making sure everybody's good and angry. And it amazes me at how similar that is to our modern political context. We each have our political sides. We have our news outlets that inflame the anger on either side. And sometimes those news outlets just are plain not true, or they're full of innuendo or conniving or rumors or whatever. And it turns me off in our modern society. And so when I see it play out, in the fervor that ultimately sparked the revolution, I think to myself, wow, in some respect, this is our country's heritage. We started here and we're still here. That's just disconcerting to me. Yeah, man. True and sad all at the same time, isn't it? Yes. 
So anyway, okay, uh, done with all of the sadness and the political talk. Uh, Josh from Missouri, what are you thinking about? You know, I have been reading this book, Open and Unafraid, about the Psalms, and I just loved this paragraph from early on in the book, and I wanted to share it. This first chapter is about honesty and how the Psalms challenge us to greater honesty. And I just, the whole chapter is just phenomenal. And I have like 10 things I would love to share, but here's the paragraph that I love. And it actually, you know what? I'll just back up one sentence. Here's, here's what it says. To pray the Psalms is to pray ourselves into wholeness. But how exactly do we become whole in this way? We become whole by praying our honest joys and our honest sorrows. We pray our honest praise of God and our honest anger at God. We pray also for honest speech in our words to God. With the psalmist, we pray that God will protect our tongues from deceit. We pray that we not sin with our words. We pray that we resist the urge to gossip and flatter, and that we choose to live with integrity, rejecting words that both inflate and deflate us before God. Mm. I just love this idea that we are, in some sense, disintegrated human beings. We are fractured human beings. And part of the invitation in prayer is to become fully integrated human beings by having the integrity, is the word that this uses, the integrity to bring all the disparate aspects of ourselves into our prayer lives. That's just a great thought. Yeah, I I think that's exactly what the Psalms do. And very unashamedly so. I think you said at the very beginning of this episode, <laughs> that's what I call emotional range. I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> David just doesn't flinch from using the whole gamut of human emotions and all the different pieces of himself to put these songs together. It's I I, I thought that was really well said. Yeah, it, it's just it's just amazing, and it's. Honestly, it has been challenging me. I find myself pausing in the midst of prayer over the last couple of days, asking myself, what are the pieces of me that I'm comfortable bringing into this conversation? What are the pieces of me that I'm not comfortable bringing into this conversation? And how do I bring them in? Hmm. And that has been an interesting, yeah, it's been very interesting for me, at least, my distractibility, feelings that I have absolutely no interest in having, moments that I am praying and then tempted to sin and then praying and then tempted to sin, and the fact that I can flip between those things with a painful speed, <laughs> it is fascinating even to acknowledge that in prayer. This is who I am. This is where I'm at. But then to allow that, somewhere else in here, he says this great thing about how the Psalms help us to do this without getting caught 
in the well of self-reflection. We start Mm. off in self-reflection, but we don't stay there because we are invited to become honest about ourselves, but also honest about God. Yeah. And that raises us up even while we are being honest about how low we are. It's a good vision for prayer, a hard vision for prayer, but a really, really valuable one. Really enjoying this book. But then again, I enjoy the first chapter of most books. (laughs) I love that answer. All right. Well, let's jump into the Witch Josh question for this week. And this one is really fun because it involves both of us. So the the question this week— And one of some of our faithful listeners. Yes. Yes, indeed. So the question this week is, which Josh once flew across the country to surprise the other Josh for his birthday? And that is me. I made the trip, but it was at the behest of your wife. Uh, She thought that that would be a great birthday present, me. And so that was really cool because as of that time, we hadn't seen each other since college. It had been I don't know, close to 10 years since college. Mm-hmm. And we'd been talking every week, but we hadn't seen one another. And all of a sudden I showed up at your apartment and it was awesome. Yeah. We had for years, and I don't know where it is, we had this picture. And my wife, if you can find this picture, by all means, post it in the comments this week. But uh, we had this picture of you coming in and me realizing you were there for the first time because Kristen, my wife, managed to keep this fully a secret from me until the moment you walked through the door by saying we lived in a, uh, we were residence directors in a residence hall at the time. And she said that a potential student was coming to visit and wanted to look at one of the apartments. So even as the door opened, I had no idea what was going on. I thought a resident, a, a new potential student was going to walk in the door. <laughs> and it was not a potential student. It was you. And so there I am holding my like less than one year old son, like with my jaw legitimately all the way down on the ground uh, because I cannot process what I am seeing. Yeah, and that photograph captures it so perfectly because she she stood in the back and just snapped that picture and watched your reaction of me walking in the door and your jaw literally is hanging wide open and you're holding your son and just like in shock and it was awesome. And she cleared your schedule without you knowing it. And so we had like three days just hanging out together. Yeah. Just it was fantastic. I got to see where you lived. We went, toured all around town. We talked endlessly. It was great. It was amazing. That was a great, great trip. It's funny that the answer to the question is you, because I always feel like that is a thing that was done to me. And so, <laughs> right, like when you said, and the answer is, I wanted to be like, it was me. Oh, no, wait, it was not me. I was the recipient, but I was not the actor in this situation. Yes, yes. Uh, 
I think it's just emblematic of our friendship. I just, I'm flying everywhere and you're just standing there in shock. That's just how this works. (laughs) (laughs) Is it now? (laughs) That's hilarious. But, well, hey, are we on for next week? Absolutely. I am so looking forward to it. All right. Well, I can't wait. I will talk to you then, if not before. Okay. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.